the first time that someone had ever got such a significant sentence for a nonviolent cannabis offense when you were following state law. So it really, it, it had like a chilling effect throughout the whole industry. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Luke Scarmazzo, cannabis pioneer, one of the first licensed medical dispensaries in the country. Luke, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Man, thanks for having me, Brian. Dope to be on the show and uh, happy to be here. Excited to kind of have a conversation today. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited and honored to talk to Luke and, you know, hear about his story and uh, the early days of cannabis and the whole kind of history. How are you, Brian? Yeah, I'm excited. And Luke, I know we have to do for the record, uh, we have an East Coast, West Coast battle in your location, please. Yeah, I'm in uh, Modesto, California, which is about an hour south of Sac, an hour east of Oakland. So yeah, I'm right in the heart of it. I love it. I guess West that's side. West Coast. West Coast, West Coast. That part's getting edited out. So Luke, <laughs> before we dive into your story, I'd love to chat. Early days, 20, 2004. What was the cannabis industry like? Okay, so transport you back into 2004. Like you walk into our dispensary. There is zero brands in there. There's not a package in there. We are dispensing cannabis in like, what you would traditionally see like prescription, like medication in like, you know, what you would get, like, I guess your Vicodin prescription or something in, right? That was what like the ACE came in and stuff and would have like a label on it, you know, with all, you know, keep out of reach of children and, you know, the strand name. So we just had strands back then. We didn't have any brands. We are basically vertically integrated, but we also bought cannabis from vendors and they would come in and they would show, you know, they would sign up, become members of the collective. And then they would like show their product and what they had. And we would buy it there. The lab testing was just like barely getting off the ground back then. The only extracts back then were like wax, some cold water hash, and some oil, really. You know what I'm saying? There wasn't vape pens, you know, none of that stuff existed in the store back then. Purple, like purple cannabis, like purple Urkel, granddaddy purple, like those were the only strands that had color in them. You know what I mean? Everything else was just green. You know what I'm saying? Like now we got all these people that are used to like all these exotic looks and exotic flavors and stuff like that. But, you know, there was only a handful of strands back then that had that. I grew up in cannabis, like in the 90s in California. My mom, I mean, my dad and my aunts and uncles all grew, sold, smoked weed. So, you know, I got like a picture that was hanging up in the back of the office and I was probably like four years old and there's like a birthday cake in front of me and it has this huge water leaf on it that's like covering the whole cake. And I'm like, like in front of the cake, it was, it was classic picture. But just to give context, like that was all around us back then. So, you know, growing up, it was kind of a natural progression to kind of, I grew my first cycle of weed when I was 15 and like 95 Northern Lights strand. And so, you know what I'm saying? Just to kind of take everybody back. And then just kind of naturally went into the market um, and always was a grower. You know what I'm saying? I was growing and selling weed before it was an industry. My daughter, I mean, it was like, there's a, there's a cycle now, right? Because now my daughter, she's like three or four years old, helping me cut clones. So if there's any, like, if there's a, a baby of this generation, like it's her, you know what I'm saying? She was in the mix, like cutting AK-47 clones when she was like four years old. You know what I mean? So she was like, dad, these are like baby plants. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was definitely a totally different time back then. Law enforcement, like even though we had uh, the Compassionate Use Act of 1996 that legalized medicinal cannabis, you know, the first cannabis regulation in the nation, law enforcement really wasn't cool with it. They still thought like if they came down and hammered people, like they could kind of put the genie back in the bottle, I guess. And so traveling with cannabis back then, even though you were legal to do it and transport, if you got pulled over like by highway patrol, or if you got pulled over by usually some of the local PDs, I mean, you could get arrested still. You would still uh, have all your product confiscated. Um, so it was, you know, it was definitely a different time. The threat of prosecution was real. Um, the feds were still coming in and hammering people. So yeah, it's like, you know, the industry now is, 
it took a lot. It took a lot to get to to where we're at today. And, you know, it's good that that people know that story and the sacrifices and just the craziness that that happened in the past. What was the process to get the license? Was there any hesitancy to kind of dive into that process? And then were there guidelines, loose, strict? How, how did that work? Yeah. So when we opened California Healthcare Collective in 2004, the MMPA had just passed. And that was basically the first dispensing, like loose regulation about dispensing that had ever passed in the country. And it kind of gave some loose regulation on cannabis dispensaries and what they were called collectives back then. And there wasn't like a whole lot to it. You know what I mean? The regulation was very vague. So you kind of had to self-regulate, right? You had to like, like they had like limits of eight ounces that could be dispensed per patient, right? But if somebody came in and bought eight ounces from our store and they had a joint in the car and they drove away and got pulled over, then it was like our fault. Like then we would be, we became the bad guys that sold them too, too much cannabis. So like we would cut the limits in half and say, oh, look, okay, it's four ounces a day. You know, that's the most that we can dispense. We had to do things like double check, like verific, uh, verify doctor's recommendations, valid California IDs. We had a whole process that we had to go through on that. And then getting the actual license, like it wasn't like it is now. Like there wasn't, you know, $20,000 local fees and stuff like that. It was literally like, you know, write, you know, fill out this license form, you know, tell us where your location is and uh, we'll give you, we'll give you the license. And the state was like real similar. Like you had to drive down to Sacramento, give them, you know, submit your paperwork for the permit. And like they issued it like a week or two later. And then we just hung them like in the back of our, our store. Like it was like a, you know, regular local business and just, you know, did our thing from there. Were you surprised like how easy it was to get the license? Obviously going in, you're probably aware of like, you know, this is what they're saying, but there has to be a part of you that's like, this seems kind of too good to be true. We're just going to fill out some paperwork. They're going to prove us and we're going to get a piece of paper. looks like a, an award and, and put on the wall. I mean, was there any sort of feeling in your mind? Like this seems kind of off. It was weird because like the thing that was really the hard part was finding the locality, right? Because like California is like a very blue state, very leans very liberal, right? But the Central Valley of where I'm located, like Sacramento, Stockton, Modesto, is really slants conservative. So, you know, you have a lot of ag, you know, people here and stuff like that. So finding the locality was the hard part. In the Bay Area, they were a lot more lenient. The local government would be like, yeah, you guys can open here. So in Modesto and Stockton, like we we went and met with Stockton first and tried to like approach the city council and the mayor and say, hey, this is what we plan to do, open a medical cannabis dispensary. And they were like, hell no. They're like, you guys are not open in here. This jurisdiction is not allowing this type of uh, activity. Like it was like we were asking to like open a cocaine factory in their in their city or something like they were like abdomenly like against it, you know, staunchly against it. So then we went back to our attorneys and we were like, yo, we went and talked to the city of Stockton. They said, absolutely not. And our attorneys were like, listen, you don't have to ask like permission to open. It's a state law. Like they, it was passed in the state. You don't have to ask permission as long as they haven't passed a ban, which just, they were just starting to like kind of put their toes in the water. Some of the localities and counties around, around trying to do bans. So they said, as long as they don't have a ban, you guys can do it. So we are like, well, hell, we'll just do it in our home city then. So we opened in, in Modesto. The first like kind of few people that came in on those first two days, they were just like leery, like looking like, is this really a dispensary? Like, are these dudes really selling medical cannabis here? Like they just wanted to see if it was real, right? And then the the local paper comes on like the second day we're open and they asked to come in. We were like, no, nah, you can't come in without a doctor's recommendation. They were like, are you guys uh, dispensing medical marijuana here. And I like hesitated because I was like, like, if I say, yeah, like the cat's out of the bag, then like, I didn't know what was going to happen, but you know, I, we, we were a legal business. So I was like, you, it, so I, I told him, yeah, we, we're, we, we dispense medical cannabis here. Um, so then the dude just leaves the next day. We're front page of the paper. I look at it at like, before I get ready to go to work and I'm like, oh shit. I'm expecting there to be like the police squad, like waiting for us when we pull up to to the to the store that day. So I pull up, and it looks like a blockbuster movie had just like released on our block. Like there was literally like 500 people lined up, like all the way around the corner and everything. And I was like, "Oh man, 
Like, this is going to be crazy now. And then like every day from that point forward, it just kept growing and getting bigger and more patients and more people to the point to where like the demand got so high that we couldn't even, I couldn't even like meet the demand anymore. Like the supply, like we had literally run every grower in the Central Valley, like dry on, on cannabis. Like they, I would come back to them in like a week and they'd be like, Luke, like, I gave you everything I had last week. I have nothing left to give you. So at that point, I ended up linking up with some of the guys up in the Mendocino and Humble in the Emerald Triangle. And man, they blessed me. I mean, those dudes up there, at first I was like, man, like it's probably just some old school, like hippie growers up there. Like, they, you know, the game probably has kind of went past them. I was dead wrong. Like those guys are beasts up there. They were like, they grew some of the, Firest cannabis that I've ever seen. And then, and they had just like an abundant supply. So we were like a perfect match for each other, right? I have this store that's booming. They have all these packs up there that they're trying to move. And we just had a great relationship there. And, you know, from that on, we had like a train coming down from the 101 that was just packed up, the, packing the dispensary up. So in the early days, there wasn't any track and trace. So, like, how did you have to do anything to like, qualify a, a, a cultivator is there any yeah. like any i mean they just they needed what they had to do is they had to become a member of the collective so they oh. would become a member of the collective sign their paperwork over and then we would give them a, like a number of recommendations to cover whatever their grow was so like a number patient of patients was, right yeah like number, yeah each patient was allowed six plants to grow right so you had to post that recommendation at your cultivation so if you had a hundred of these recommendations there, you could grow 600 plants. So, and then it's, you know, there wasn't any limit on it like that. They hadn't really like tapped down on that. So when it, once a grower became a member of the collective and, and a vendor, then it, it was completely legal for us to go up and transport the cannabis down from their facility. So in real time, you were helping kind of to build the infrastructure and get others on board because you had to kind of be the customer facing as people were coming in. You're like, I had to get more supply. And then you had to get more people kind of on board. Were there other stores opening up at this time, like competitors like near you, like trying to get involved in the legal cannabis market? Well, there were stores that were opening up in like the Bay Area, right? Because of just how liberal those those local governments were. But right after we opened in the Central Valley, all the surrounding cities and counties started issuing these moratoriums and bans. Like they were like, the sky was falling, right? Like, oh shit, we got medical cannabis up, you know, in, in our, in our locality. So even our own city tried to like zone us out and like ban dispensaries. And we thought like, oh man, now we got to shut down. And then, you know, our attorney said, no, actually like you guys are grandfathered in because you guys were already doing business. So then all the surrounding cities and everything start issuing these bans and implementing these bans. So instead of like shutting us down, what they did is like essentially created like a monopoly. Now we have like the only dispensary in like a hundred mile radius in the center of California, which is like the fifth largest economy in the world. Right. So like, then it got wild. It got really wild then because then, I mean, people from everywhere were coming. It wasn't just now people from Modesto that were coming in. It was people coming in from Stockton, coming in from Sacramento, Merced, Oakland, the Bay area, all the you know cities in the East of us. So it was, it got wild. It got wild there for sure. Was it uh deli style in the early days like were they did you let customers like smell product and like that whole kind of experience that yeah yeah i mean like we had california got away from it but i still love it (laughs) yeah yeah no it was definitely like the way to go right because we would have like you know all the mason jars of each strand labeled and all that stuff and they would all be set out right and then they, they would we had like a basically like a menu board like similar to kind of what you got behind you right there just with the list of all the different strands on them that, you know, we had high grade, mid grade and kind of like a, uh, you know, more affordable type of aid and people would, yeah, they'd be able to come in, like handle the cannabis, look at it, smell it, open the jar. And then once they picked whatever strand they want, our sales guy would kind of radio into the processing room. They would get it, get it ready for them, weigh it out, put it in the medicine vial, bag it up and, and bring it out for sales. So business, I'm assuming is booming at this point. Is there thoughts in your mind yeah. about expansion and growing this? Because there has to be a, a thought process where like, hey, we did this once. It is absolutely thriving. Do you consider going more? Like, Take us through that thought process. Yeah. The next move was 
to go to the the next biggest market that was untapped, which was Southern California. So we, as soon as we kind of got our bearings and were able to kind of meet the demand that that was being created up in Modesto and in Northern California, uh, we started to look t- down south towards LA. We started to kind of look at properties and stuff at that point and feel out LA for what their you know laws were and what their regulations were you know regarding cannabis. And we we actually had contracts signed with a property the day we got raided. Like we were supposed to actually meet with the property owners later on. So I kind of fast forwarded to you know the feds coming in in September of '06. But yeah, we were probably we would have been open in LA in probably the beginning of '07 if everything would have went well. So let's stay with the early days, and then we'll hop into that story. Who were some of the players that you recall? Some of the bigger names that maybe were smaller back then that kind of had burst on the scene. Do you have any individuals like that that come to mind? So yeah, like remember I kind of mentioned like there was a few dispensaries in the Bay Area, and we would go to them, you know, because we, you know, we were such kind of a tight knit community back then. Like if somebody opened in the Bay Area, we usually knew the owners or something like that. So there was a spot in Frisco that used to sell clones and, you know, dispense cannabis. And in Frisco, you could actually smoke on the premises, which was really dope. That was something that like, you know, was kind of a new thing back then. And the guy that was working the door at that dispensary was Burner. You know, I mean, Burner was sitting there, he was checking IDs, cool as shit, you know, so it was it was really dope, like me getting out and then watching the progression of Burner being in like, the ground floor of the industry way back then, back when we were opening our dispensaries to, you know, the empire that he's blown up now. So that, that was really dope. I mean, there's a lot of guys, a lot of guys are huge. Now my dude, Addison Demora, he runs legends of hashish. He's like one of the biggest like hash producers in like the state. And it's like high level stuff, man. I mean, I, this, I could name people from back in the day all the time, but they're just, they're huge now. Uh, third gen farms, Josh D that that created the OG Kush strand back in, in in LA back in the day. You know, it's really awesome to see that these guys they're still in the industry. They're still doing, you know, things that they love and and they're being recognized for it. And I think that's dope. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And Burner's told that story about how working that that area has allowed him to meet so many people because he said it was such a small tight knit community and everyone came through that early in those early days and how important that was. Yeah. So the number one product, the number one strain you remember from from that time? Mm, damn. Uh, probably the Granddaddy Purple or the Purple Urkel. Both of those were like my favorites because not only did they have that exotic look and that color and just were super frosty, right? They tasted like like a great Jolly Rancher. I mean, you would hit that thing. And like back then, like we 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 smoked blunts a lot now, which, you know, I do not condone smoking tobacco. Um but back then, you know, that's, that was the thing, right? So when you would like load up one of those bunts with like an eighth of some granddaddy or some Urkel, like, and taste it like through the tobacco, like that was like a, a special treat. And then we used to like, I don't know if you're familiar with, there's, there's a new kind of uh, thing coming out right now called hash holes. And basically it's like a, it's like a pre-roll that they like put like hash all in the center of it. And, you know, it, it you know, just get you sky high right well so back then we used to do something similar we would take like the granddaddy bust open the blunt load it up with keith from whatever like the romulan strand or whatever we had back then then we put cold water hash on top of it then we drip like oil all on top of that right and then we would roll it that thing would burn for like 45 minutes and i mean literally there would be like seven people that were just wasted baked off of it and so like you know just things like that like you just don't really see that type of stuff anymore no i mean that sounds incredible so continuing the operation is there ever any hesitancies or any people that come in give you warnings or any feelings in the back of your mind thinks that like hey what we're doing now could potentially have some issues in the future did you ever have those thoughts i mean not really because i mean the feds were were kind of shutting some of the places down but we felt like if we paid our taxes and we ran an above board operation, you know, we were licensed. So we felt like if we did everything right, right, that, you know, they would they would go after maybe the people that were, you know, skirting some of the California laws or something like that. So, you know, in hindsight, like if they would have sent me like a cease and desist order and said, hey, look, if you don't shut down your dispensary, we're going to give you, you know, two decades in federal prison, I would have been like, 
peace, guys. I'm out of here. But I mean, that just wasn't the case. You know, they that you know, the local local law enforcement, of course, was always hostile to us. But I mean, that was just kind of par for the course because they just didn't accept medical cannabis at all. They they felt like we were all lying, that there was no real medical benefit to cannabis and that like everybody was just trying to get high. And and so, you know, the it was expected to come from like a, a local conservative police department, but you know, I always thought like the feds would be a little bit more analytical on who they were kind of or strategic on who they would kind of decide to raid and who they wouldn't. But, you know, in hindsight too, like I was super outspoken. I was outspoken like before I was incarcerated, the whole time I was running the dispensary about just like advocating for for a just and fair industry. You know, what I mean, I felt like, you know, federal prosecution and that threat of federal prosecution and how a lot of lo- the local PDs and law enforcement were dealing with it was just unfair. You know, what I mean, it was a law that was passed by the state and I was really vocal about it. So I think that could have been a reason that, you know, we were we were unfairly targeted. Did your attorneys have any like guidance on that? Were they not very concerned about federal, like the federal government coming? Well, in in 2005, like about, I would say like maybe a year halfway into what we were doing, probably a year into running the dispensary, a Supreme Court decision had had come down. It was called Rates versus Gonzalez. And up until that point, the DEA was had a injunction against them of raiding or arresting anybody who was involved in the medical cannabis industry. But in 2005, the Supreme Court overturned that decision. So at that point, some of our attorneys came to us and said, look, it's a little bit different now. Like we don't, the California law is still California law. The decision didn't affect that and didn't like nullify it in any way. But at the same time, the feds have now been given the green light that they can go back in and, and resume some of these raids. So we, we definitely, you know, it, it changed a little bit in at, at 2005, but still we were at the point where we were like, we're doing it right. Like, why would they come in and raid a legitimate business that's paying taxes? I mean, we were paying federal taxes. Like, So let's go into that day on September 2006. You know, what was the morning like? How did that, how did that happen? And take us through what you, you remember. It was my daughter's birthday. So it was on September 27th. Uh, she had to fly down with her mom and some of her friends to Disneyland. We were going to have her birthday party at Disneyland. It was going to be a really big deal. It was her fourth birthday. And I had some meetings later on that day. So I was like, me and my dad were going to fly back, fly or fly down there later, later on that day. So at like six in the morning, I just get a knock on the door. And it's like a state probation guy, right? And he was like talking to me and said, you know, introduced himself and asked if anybody was here. And I said, no, you know, I was just by myself at that point. And, uh, he, he just kind of like nods and says, okay. He goes, you mind if we come in? And I was like, sure. You know, I didn't, I didn't have anything to hide. And so they come in, he asked me to go sit, sit at the table. And when I go sit at the table, he says something in his radio, like all clear or something like that. And then they like bust my door in and like, 12 of these like federal officers in all military tactics and helmets and, you know, machine guns all come just raiding through like the house. We had already told them that, or I had already told them that nobody else was even here. Like, and I'm sitting on the kitchen table, like talking to them. It was totally overkill, totally overreach, unnecessary. And they just came in like crazy deep, you know, kicking in doors of bedrooms, waving, you know, assault rifles everywhere. And, you know, this is for a, a licensed medical cannabis operator. So, you know, they came in and, you know, the DEA comes in and waves their badges at me, you know, say that they're simultaneously raiding the dispensary and our managers and my co-founder, Ricardo Montes, who was, by the way, the, like the first Mexican-American dispensary owner in the country. So that's something that he's proud of. Um, and then basically come up to me and say, okay, like you're, you're facing this amount of time. Like, do you want to talk to us and make a deal? And I'm like, hell no. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm doing everything legal. Plus like I'm from California. Like I'm, we, we don't do that. We don't talk like if, listen, if I get hit, I get hit. I take, I take it on the chin. I'm not like, they really wanted our Mendocino like suppliers bad because they knew like we had these like, you know, just truckloads coming down from the Emerald Triangle. And it was just like not something that was even on the table. So we said, you know, nah, we're, we're, 
we'll take whatever we got. And they ended up trucking us down to the local county jail and then shipping us later down to Fresno, California, where they have like a federal holding facility. And then it became a long fight to like, it was like a two month or like a month and a half period for me to even bail out. Like they wouldn't let me bail out. My bail was $4 million. Yeah, it was like, you know, when people murder people on the street, they get like million dollar bails. And now I, I'm sitting in, in a federal holding facility in Fresno with a $4 million bond. And I'm just like, this is like, they are really, really making this difficult, really making this hard. And, you know, I eventually was able to to put up the money to be able to get out and then fought my case from the street for, for the next two years. At what moment when you were locked up, did you realize that this was obviously very different? Was it the 4 million? And was it conversations with your lawyer who said, hey, like, Luke, I don't think these guys are playing like uh, the standard game. We think we're trying to make an example of you. Did you ever feel that? Did those conversations ever happen? Yeah, it was when they did what's called a superseding indictment. When I was initially arrested, I was just arrested for distribution of of marijuana, which is, you know, it's not a light charge, but it's, you know, it's one of the lighter charges in in the federal system. And then they did what, while I was fighting to get out on bail, they uh, did what's called a superseding indictment. And then it came, they came back with an 18 count indictment. And the number, the first charge on this, which is always going to be your most significant charge was what's called a continuing criminal enterprise. And it's otherwise known as the kingpin offense. It's the same charge that they charge like El Chapo with or like cartel leaders and stuff like that. So when I saw that, I was like, ah, shit, like they're really coming hard on this. Like that charge carried a mandatory minimum of 20 years. That doesn't matter if you've never been in trouble before in your whole life. If you get found guilty of that offense, the judge has to sentence you to a minimum of 20 years in prison. So. And then there was like 17 other charges of like, you know, distribution, manufacturing, you know, manufacturing is in, in the federal system just means you're growing. So it's distribution, manufacturing, um, a, an array of like money laundering charges that were totally bogus that they ended up dropping later. But they just they just stacked all these charges on top of us. And that's when I realized, like, they're trying to set an example. They're trying to make an example out of us and scare the rest of the industry out of continuing to grow this industry into what it what it became so it was a real turning point because i've i've talked to like a lot of like the dispensary owners and cultivators that were around back then recently and they were like dude when you guys got arrested and they hit you guys with that continuing criminal enterprise like i shut my shop down like i was scared to death or i shut my cultivation facility down because it was a real you know it's the first time that someone had ever got such a significant sentence for a nonviolent cannabis offense when you were following state law. So it really, it it had like a chilling effect throughout the whole industry. But thank God there was still like a lot of brave people that said, you know, we're going to continue to push this forward. A lot of brave men and women that continued to grow and, and open dispensaries and, you know, brought us around to where we are today. I mean, there's a lot of bravery that could be said in terms of uh, you kind of just keeping your entire network to yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was, that was really important. Yeah. That was real important to us, you know, to, you know, be a stand up person, you know, take, you know, there's, there's no reason to sell out any of your, your guys or your comrades or your, the people that are working with you when, when you're the one who got hit, you know, sometimes you just got to roll with it and take it. And, you know, that was really important for us to have honor and, and dignity and, and just be stand up in that type of situation. Do you think that they threw the book at you like that as uh, maybe an effort to try to get some of that information? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's how it works. I mean, that's that's the basic premise of how, why they overcharge you. They charge you with, you know, 100 years worth of charges and then say, OK, you know, if you cooperate, we'll give you two years. You know, and then to a lot of people, that sounds really appealing. You know, to to us, it just was not something that was ever on the table for us. It was not something that we would ever consider. You know, it was, we felt like, listen, we're going to ride this thing all the way out and uh, let the cards fall where they may. When you first got your list of charges, did you think that you'd be convicted on those charges? Or did you think that they would kind of think it through and say, hey, I was paying my state taxes. I was paying my federal taxes. Like, there's some decency here in people. Did you ever have those thoughts in your head? Oh, yeah. No, I thought we'd beat them. And like, my lawyers were like saying like, Yo, you guys are going to beat these guys. Like, we're going to field a jury of California voters who, who you know, at least 
six of the 12 or seven of the 12 actually voted for this law. And, you know, once we show that we're able to, that we were paying our taxes, had a license and all those things that we would be able to, you know, be victorious and prevail on and, and be vindicated. What I didn't know was in the federal system, state law is completely irrelevant. We could like, they basically handicapped us a week before trial and said, you can't say the words medical marijuana. You can't talk about you having a license. You can't tell them that you pay taxes. So they basically got to paint us as these like huge drug kingpins. And we just had to take it. Like we had to like try to be real creative on how we could get in like certain language or what we were doing. And I mean, it was, it was a kangaroo court, man. And they, they rigged it up to where we, we couldn't even give them the real circumstances of why we were dispensing cannabis. You couldn't even really actively defend yourself for like following no. all the rules. Why, why do you think you think that was obviously intentional that they did that? And how, like, what did yeah, the lawyers say when that conversation happened? I mean, it's actually the law today, too, is still in effect. Like, in, until the feds legalize or it becomes descheduled, it doesn't matter what your the feds basically feel like it doesn't matter what your reason is for violating federal law, that it's irrelevant in a federal court. You know, as long as they can prove that you violated the federal narcotics statutes, your reasoning for it is really irrelevant. So, yeah, I, I, I wish I would have realized that prior to the to going into trial, that it would be that much of an uphill battle because we were offered 10 years. We were offered a 10 year plea deal before we went into trial. And 10 years seemed like a lifetime to me at that time. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'd never done no, no prison time before. So I'm like, they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you guys 10 years to, you know, just plead out and avoid trial. And and so I discussed it with, with Ricardo, my co-defendant and brother at the time. He was like, hell no. And I'm like, bro, 10 years seems like life to me. Like at that time, like, now, in hindsight, I ended up doing 15, right? Way over what my, my plea, plea deal was. But, you know, we thought we'd be victorious in trial. We really thought, like, if we go into trial and we field 12 California voters, that we would be able to, like, show them that we were a legitimate medical cannabis business. And that just wasn't the case, man. Throughout the trial, where you continued to be optimistic, or was there a moment during the trial where you felt like, hey, we can't use these words, we're kind of feeling like we're losing momentum? Did you ever feel like that? Yeah, there was definitely a point to where we felt like we were losing momentum. But then there was there would be like little like rays of hope, like where we would like, because I was on bail at that time, right? So I'm I'm being able to like walk out of courtroom and go to lunch with everybody and stuff like that. So I would see some of the jurors sometimes and like some of the jurors would like do things like come by and be like, you know, give me a thumbs up or like something crazy. Like I didn't even know how to react to some of it. Like sometimes I'd be like, uh, act like I didn't see that, you know, because I didn't know like, is that if I was like breaking the law, like by even talking to him, right? One time in particular, a juror, we're going into the elevator and I'm with my daughter's mother and my daughter, she's, you know, five years old at the time. And my daughter's mother was kind of complaining about having to take her belts off and all that while we go in and out of the metal detectors and security at the beginning, at the front of the courthouse. And a juror comes into the elevator with us and he starts like relating to her saying, yeah, it sucks. And then uh, he said like, oh, is this, is this your daughter? And she's like, yeah. And then he leans down and tells my daughter, oh, don't worry, honey, your daddy's not going anywhere. And I'm just like, whoa, like for real? So like, we would have like little things like that that would just be like the trial might not have been going good, but I'm like, man, these jurors seem like they're on our side though, you know? And then after the fact, when, after we got found guilty, the jurors came forward and said like, because in a federal system, they can't know what the penalty is for the charge, right? Now they could probably go look it up if they did their own research on their own, right? But that, you know, nobody tells them like, okay, if you find them guilty of count one, this is how much time they get. If you find them guilty of count two, this is how much time they get. So what they thought was like, you know, this is just a cannabis case. Like, and these guys obviously have, there's something around it that looks like they were following some type of state law and stuff like that. So the jurors thought we were going to get like probation or like a year in prison. So when they're sitting there, you know, giving us the thumbs up and, you know, saying, hey, don't worry, your dad's not going anywhere. They really thought like, even if we find find these guys guilty on this, like nothing, they're going to get a slap on the wrist and, and, you know, be back doing their thing. When they found out that we had a mandatory minimum attached to our 
our offense of 20 years. Three of them come forward and want to pull back their verdict. They actually signed affidavits and everything and said, hey, look, if we would have known like it carried that type of penalty, like we never would have voted guilty. And the judge was like, too late. Like you don't get to have like buyer's remorse on this. You found them guilty and now it's my job to sentence them. So obviously we, t- we take the steps forward. You're found guilty. Are you having conversations with people on the outside and understanding how the industry is going or how are those relationships gone? Yeah. I mean, I'm still like, I'm still tapped in with the culture. I'm still tapped in with a lot of my people that were still in, you know, the industry back then. And, and, and now, um, you know, it, it was, it was hard at first because when you go into the federal system, you go with that much time, you go to like some really high security prisons. So, you know, my initial prison, the highest security prison you can get to is called a penitentiary, a U.S. penitentiary. So when you go into those situations, it's very restrictive. You like, you get 15 minute phone calls, writing letters, you know, is like some of your only communication on the street. Um, and then like a few years into it, we got like these email systems where we could kind of communicate with on email and stuff like that. But as the years went by and like, I kind of walked my security level down when I finally got to a low security there was like phones everywhere. Now you're not supposed to have phones. It's illegal to have phones in there, but like they were there, right? So I walk in like my first day of getting to a low facility, right? And I'm kind of, it's like a, now it's not in cells anymore. It's like a dorm setting. So I'm walking down like this aisle of this dorm and I'm like looking side to side and there's like phones on, like everybody got phones now. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like this is a totally different gig now. So like I'm getting on, you know, we're, we we can tap into social media and stuff like that. People can kind of stay in contact with their family more. Like people think crazy stuff is happening on the phones, man. The the phones really are just people trying to t- keep contact with their community and with their families. You know, there's nobody like setting up no crazy things going on on their phones, right? So that really enabled me to be able to kind of just stay in contact and be like, okay, like people can tap in now with me. People can kind of relate to me. And it was, it, it kind of like was in a way made it to where I kind of jumped the learning curve of, of technology and social media, right? Because I, when I went in, I had like the very first iPhone. It was like iPhone one. You know what I'm saying? So like, and it didn't do like any of the things like the new phone. So when I come out and I got the iPhone 14 Pro Max or or whatever it is, right? I'm looking at this thing like, what the, you know what I'm saying? Like, how, how do you even use this thing? Like, so the, for real, like the technology is the biggest jump, like from 15 or, or from, from 2004 till now. And like the industry is night and day too. And, and I, we can touch a little bit on that if you like, but. You know, that's just the technology like was the biggest thing because when I left, there was like pay phones on every corner and MySpace was jumping. You know what I'm saying? Just to kind of give your listeners a dial little up internet on what it was. <laughs> Did you stop dial up internet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, the old AOL, like you've got mail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could definitely hop into that. And I'd like to. I think just to put it from context, right? You went in and there was payphone boost, and now you're coming out, and cannabis is is legal in multiple states, right? What like what a wide disparity from from when you first got started. Were, were you consuming cannabis inside? Like, can you talk about that at all? Or like, what type of product quality were you able to tell anyone? Hey, like, this is what well, I got I mean, in trouble for. Did anyone believe you? I don't know. Like, if if I could get in trouble or not, but I don't really care at this point. Is Yes, I smoked every single day I was in prison. <laughs> and I even got a, a dirty test once. If you get a dirty test in, in prison, they throw you in the in the solitary confinement for like 60 days. It's it's rough. So people don't people really try to avoid it. But yeah, I smoked in there. In California, we had, you know, we had good good weed coming in. But when I got transferred over to like Louisiana and Mississippi, no I mean ooh, man, they they got it tough out there. Like they were coming in like, yo, Luke, we got some gas. And I'd look at it and I'd be like, Absolutely. dog, like this is trash right here. You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys have some of the worst weed around. So yeah, we we definitely need to help the South um level up on their cannabis game down there, which I think they are. I think like some of them are South Oklahoma's doing real good out over there. Mississippi, I think, just came online. Louisiana been online for a second on on the medical stuff, so hopefully that they they can uh, bring it around and be able to get some good good cannabis down there because people need it down there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's fast forward a little bit. You you get that email and I know you were in disbelief and you had to double check it. Take us through that story and then we can hop into kind of present day cannabis. Okay. So I had no idea I was getting out. Like we had stuff in court, but I had, I've been had stuff in court for years at that point, right? So it was a Friday morning on uh, February 3rd. So literally what, like 96 days ago or whatever. And I get up and do my normal routine. I make some coffee, you know, getting ready to work out. And I log on to that email system that, that I was telling you about. And I see like just a crazy number of emails that are on there. And I'm like, damn, what the, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's kind of weird. I don't usually get that many emails. So I click on it. The very first email is from my, my attorney, Carrie Dent from King and Spalding in DC. She's a beast, by the way. I know like most people can't afford an attorney like that. And I just got blessed to be able to work with them pro bono. But like, I'm telling you, she is brilliant. She's like a sweet looking, you know, lady that you would never think like, okay, like she's anything other than just that, right? Pitbull when it comes to the law. I'm talking about this lady is brilliant. But anyway, you know, shout out to Carrie though. But yeah, so I get a message from Carrie and the subject line says, you're a free man. And I just like stare at this thing for literally like five minutes. And I'm just reading it because man, Brian, it took so long to get to that point. Like so many disappointments, so many almost theirs. Um, You know, my family had gone through like the roller coaster of, oh, he's going to get out. Oh, he's not getting out. And to the point where I didn't even want like want to share like news with them of like, hey, we might get a ruling or anything like that. I would just kind of keep it close to the best because I just didn't want to disappoint him anymore. But when I'm sitting there reading this email, it's just like washing over me and just thinking to myself like, man, is is it really over? So I log out, I go put my coffee down in my cell. I'm standing in my cell for like a couple minutes. And I said, man, I got to go back and read that again. Like, did that really say what that said? Like, so I, or am I tripping right now? So I go back, reread the email. Um, and yeah, it said you're getting out. And I, then I saw a couple of other emails from Weldon, a few other people, my mom and dad, of course. And then I, I go over to my workout crew and I'm like, hey, guys, I ain't working out today. And they were like, what? Why? And I didn't want to say anything to them at first yet until the prison made it official, right? Because like I'm still like in disbelief kind of, right? So I'm like, I don't know, man. I got to talk to my lawyer and, and see what's going on. Well, like, you know, an hour later, prison calls me into like the back offices and they say, hey, look, you've been granted immediate release. We got to have you off the compound in like three hours. So I, when I come out of that room, like everybody knows now, like the whole unit, there's like 150 like hardened convicts that are sitting there hugging me and laughing and everybody's like clapping and shit like that. Overwhelming love from all the dudes in there. And uh, I have like 15 years worth of stuff in my cell, right? All, you know, the music stuff, clothes, you know, just stuff that you accumulate over the years, right? So they tell me to go pack it up. I said, man, I'm not packing a thing in here. I said, you guys can have all this shit. I will. I literally will walk out with what I have on right now. You know, I just grabbed like my pictures, my family pictures and some of my legal paperwork and, and literally walked out of the door with just that. I mean, incredible, right? I can only imagine for the ups and downs that you face, like that feeling of seeing the email and then wondering to yourself, like, is this another time of disappointment or is this for real? And I can only imagine how how happy you must have felt when you recognized it was real. So you're in Mississippi, right? Yeah, I was in Mississippi. So how do we get home? <laughs> that That's actually a funny thing, right? It's like, they have to get you back to where your release residence is. But... They wanted me that they they only will pay for a bus ticket. So the bus ticket was going to be like 66 hours or something crazy like that. I'm like, I am not sitting on no Greyhound bus for 66 hours while I'm waiting to get home, like what with how I feel right now. So you can you can get a plane ticket, but you got to pay for it yourself. So I call I call Weldon over at Mission Green. I was like, you know, he already knows what's going on. I'm like, hey, we got to get a plane ticket. I said, because I can't sit on a bus for three days and drive back home. Like, I'd go crazy in that thing. So we got a plane ticket. I go to the airport. I call my daughter. I had talked to her earlier that day and told her I was getting out. She went crazy, started crying and all that stuff. But I didn't talk to her the rest of the day. And when I'm in the airport, I call her 
And I'm like, hey, I'm in the airport. I said, where are you at? And she's like, I'm in the airport. I'm like, what do you mean you're in the airport? She's like, I'm coming to see you. So she, she literally jumped the next plane. My daughter's out in Newark, actually. She lives in Jersey City. So she jumped the next plane at Newark Airport to California and almost beat me to California. She, I think she was like 10 minutes behind me when I landed. So that was dope, man. Just being able to reconnect with her after so long uh, was really the best thing, Brian. I mean, I'm talking about like, I missed her so much. She was my number one advocate never wavered, was like in, grew up in like a prison visiting room. You know what I mean? When most girls would have been like shopping or going to the mall, she's sitting there supporting her dad eating frozen burritos. You know what I mean? So, man, much love to my daughter. She she held me down. And just to be able to reunite with her and reconnect with her right there at the airport, like on my first few hours of being out was just like the biggest blessing that I ever received. So after that initial like news, you get home. Is it like the first week you kind of just like indulge in regular everyday life stuff and then kind of walk us through those like kind of couple weeks after you get out? Like my main thing that I want to do, like there was all kinds of stuff lined up for me, right? Media stuff and, you know, meeting with people and, you know, talking business and all those things, right? But my main focus was like, I want to just reconnect with my family. It had been so long since I had been able to just be with them, you know, other than being like supervised. And then with COVID and the restrictions that happened with, with you know, the whole pandemic, it's like we weren't allowed visits for years. So we, I literally had not seen my family. I think I saw them once in like five years, you know? So just being able to be reconnect with them and, you know, just eat some food, like literally on the drive home, I, I, I see a pizza hut and I'm like, pull over, like pizza is not my favorite pizza, but I just wanted a pizza. It didn't matter what it was, like li- literally could have been a little Caesars or something. And I would have been like, yo, pull over, we're getting a pizza. So I, you know, food, of course, like I wanted to just eat as much like of different food that I could because everything you hear about prison food is true. Let me just go ahead and just say that for the, for the audience out there. It's like, Prison food sucks. It's terrible. So one of the first things I wanted to do is just eat a bunch of good food. The crazy thing was like, I was looking forward to being like in a bed, right? And and sleeping in like a big comfortable bed. I lay down in the bed that first night and I felt like I was like drowning in the thing. Like, cause you know, beds in prison are like, they're on steel, right? And you got a mattress that's like probably like this thick, you know what I mean? So for years and years, I'm used to sleeping on this really hard surface. So I lay on this like big sealy posturepedic bed and I felt like I was like in quicksand. Like I, I slept like crap that whole night because I'm like, this bed is too soft. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, but I'm, I'm used to it now though. I love the soft bed now, but man, it was, it, it was a definitely a game changer. What was it like checking out California's cannabis scene? Man, eye-opening. Just, I mean, like I said, I had kind of, you know, kept my my thumb on the pulse of it throughout throughout my incarceration. But to come out and actually see it, like, you know, I went to Benzinga where I where I connected with you guys in Miami. That was dope. And then I just got got back from Hall of Flowers uh, last week. That was crazy. Just to see like how much the industry has just blown up and become accepted. You know what I mean? Like, I'm talking to like soccer moms and stuff that are talking about their vape pens now, you know what I mean? And stuff like that, like that, like would never have happened back in 04. Like they would have never, like, even if they were smoking cannabis, they never would have admitted to it, like in front of other people. Right. So that is dope. I I love like how it's being just researched and be, people are being able to use it therapeutically and medicinally for an array of different things, you know, because I really think like all medical can or all cannabis use is medical in some way, right? Like we're either, you know, helping with our anxiety, helping with sleep, helping just relax, helping to just vibe out on like a party scene or whatever it is, right? So I just love that it's more being more accepted out here. And the only thing that I would have to say is like, the government in California has gotten way too involved. Now we wanted like government regulation back then in 04, right? Cause it was real loose. And I even felt like to have like a cool framework to where we could work within would be dope. Right. But they have over-regulated this plant out here to where 
we're we're seeing like double and triple taxation on on cultivators and dispensary owners to where they're really making it hard to survive as a business owner. So that part is really kind of kind of uh you know a depressing thing that I hope that like I can use my story and kind of advocate to help change part of that too. You know, freeing the people that are incarcerated for cannabis is of course my primary goal that before anything, right? But at the same time, we have to make this industry sustainable. We have to make it to where people can be viable business owners out here if, if we want this to survive and continue to go forward. Are there any restrictions or ways that you can't be around the plant? Obviously, uh, with you being in, in in trouble with the cannabis, I would wonder if if the law was a little more hesitant for you to be around it again. Was there any sort of policies around that? Yeah. So... I got what's called five years supervised release, which is basically like parole or probation, right? And within that, my, my restrictions is I can't do any plant touching. I can't smoke. I'm, I'm tested three times a month and all that stuff, which is to me like, okay, the federal judge who let me out, Dale Draws, right? Thank you, Dale. Love you. But the judge who let me out, let me out because of the injustice of my case and because the changing legal landscape surrounding cannabis and that it would have continued to be, you know, unjust for me to serve that long sentence. Right. So when I come out, I still have this five years probation that was attached to me when I was sentenced back in 2008. So it doesn't make any sense. Like, so one, one of the things that Carrie is going to, Carrie Dent is going to try to do for me is to try to get the supervised release drop because it's, it just is unreasonable. It doesn't make any sense to, you know, for me to be able to have these restrictions when I wasn't breaking the law, you know what I mean? So hopefully we can get that lifted. But in the meantime, like I'm just participating in whatever capacity I can I'm get, you know, I'm doing, you know, a lot of advocacy work came on board with Glasshouse to be able to kind of steer that ship and use the resources of Glasshouse to make an impact in that space. And they've been, it's awesome because they've been super supportive of that. And it's just good to be in a situation where people are as passionate about a subject that I am, you know, and and releasing anyone who's incarcerated for cannabis is huge. Talk about your role with them and talk about the first experience of you visiting their unicorn uh, greenhouse. Okay, yeah. So I was brought on by Glasshouse as their lead brand ambassador to kind of spearhead the, you know, social justice wing of the company. They've been super welcoming. Like Graham and Kyle advocated for me when I was still incarcerated. And that meant a lot to me because there was not a lot of large companies that were sitting there saying free the cannabis prisoners or saying anyone's name and stuff like that. So when you had a large company like Glasshouse and they were actually raising awareness and vocalizing like, hey, look, these guys, Parker Coleman needs to be free, Jose Valero, Luke Scarmazzo, like, and they're saying that our names at these different events and and on film and stuff like that, it meant a lot to me. So I, I wanted to work with them when I got out. So it was an awesome relationship. Weldon Angelos linked, linked me up and they brought me on as lead brand ambassador. And from day one, like, it's just been an awesome relationship where they've been really supportive of you know, making sure that we make a real impact in this space, right? So I really am happy that Glasshouse recognized that I could make a contribution in this space. And we're going to make probably the biggest impact that any company has ever made. That's dope, number one. So about, I'd say a month after I was brought on board, you know, they they said, hey, we're going to come down, bring you down to company headquarters and do the onboarding and stuff like that. So I'm like, cool. So I fly down there got to see their facility, which is like nothing I've ever seen in the history of man. (laughs) Like this facility is like a cultivator's dream. I mean, they're going to be doing tours, I think of it soon. So if you have the opportunity to go down and tour this thing, Brian, if you haven't, or, you know, anybody who's listening, if you want to go down and tour Glasshouse's farm, you have to do it. If you are like ever been in the space, or if you just like cannabis, like, this thing is like, it's like its own planet and it's like all growing cannabis on it. Like it's that big and it's just, it's awe, it's awe inspiring. Like when I grew, when I grew my first cycle of cannabis in 95, when I was, you know, just 15 years old, like I'm growing in my closet. You know what I'm saying? I got like a few plants in my closet, right? 
And then, you know, a big show back then for us was like a 40 or 50 lighter. That was like mesmerizing. We're like, damn, you're growing like this whole warehouse. Like, that's crazy. Like, this is the biggest grow ever. Down there, they have 5.5 million square feet. That's with the M, million square feet. Like, growing on that level, it's huge. And what they're trying to do is they're really doing it sustainably. You know, they're using solar power. It's a completely self-sufficient grow using the sun. And they're going to be positioned to make a uh, really, really big contribution to on the national scale once we can get some federal legalization and interstate commerce. Um, so Glasshouse is, is, is awesome. What the, the visionaries that they have there are awesome. What they, Graham and Kyle have put together over there is something that's very impressive. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of the team down there. And I'm, I'm really excited about what we can do to uh, bring justice and, and, and bring, you know, just the advocacy side of, of the company, like really to, to fruition. Jay, yeah, shout out to Graham and Kyle for absolutely killing it. Um, would like to know, in your opinion, are there still others that are facing similar charges for nonviolent cannabis vendors? And can you kind of share some more information about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's thousands of people that are sitting in federal prison right now for a nonviolent cannabis charge. And we can't forget about them. Like, you know, free Parker Coleman, free Bubba Johnson, free Edwin Rubus, free Frank Rogers, free... Danny Trevino, free Jose Valero. And then there's hundreds of women too. Mandy Lee Carlson, Carrie Pearson, Dina Martin. Like, I mean, I could literally use the rest of your show and, and name people. That's how like sad of a situation it is. But one of the things I'm really excited about is that, you know, now that I've been out, like now it really begins. You know, now the work, the hard work really begins. Like I'm out, I'm cool, I'm free and that's great and everything. But there's still my brothers and sisters that are sitting in a prison cell for a nonviolent cannabis, cannabis offense. What everybody does in California every day, all these big companies, what they're doing every day is what landed these people in a prison cell. There's people, there's moms and daughters, there's brothers and sisters and sons that are sitting in a federal prison cell. Like, I can't stress that enough. Like, there's the taxation stuff going on. There's stuff in the industry that, that we need changed, regulations and all that stuff. But before we do any of that, the banking, you know, safe banking needs to pass. But before we do any of that, man, we have to let these people out of prison. Like, we can't continue to, like, talk about cannabis and talk about forwarding the, the industry without, without freeing the people that are still incarcerated. When people hear your story and Weldon's, do they understand the implications? Do they do they recognize, especially people on DC, when you guys are having those active conversations? How how is that happening, and what what's the disconnect? I don't think they know. I mean, when when I share my story, like okay, like for example, even in in Miami, like we're at the Benzinga Cannabis Capital Conference, right? And when I got up and spoke and and told my story and shared it, you know, with the thousands of people that were there. Like the rest of the day, people came up to me and said, we had no idea that there was a licensed operator that was serving 22 year sentence in federal prison. Like we had no idea. This is our people, right? This is the cannabis space. Like if anybody should know about that situation, it should be, you know, our own industry. So when I saw that, it was really eye opening. And I said, wow, like, I really have to continue to humanize my story and share it with as many people as possible on as many platforms as possible. Because if the cannabis industry is that ignorant to the fact that we have these situations going on, regular Joe and Jane Citizen, like they're really going to be ignorant to it. So that's why it's so important like for us to meet with lawmakers, go to DC and talk to the people. Like I was just in the state capitol on Monday. And, you know, two days ago and meeting with lawmakers and senators and assembly people and, you know, sharing my story and letting them know like, hey, look, this is something that we have to make an impact in this space. We can't continue to let it go on. And we'll be in D.C. soon and I'll be doing the same thing there. And the more that I can be able to just humanize my story and share it with people and let them know that we have these situations that are continuing today that must stop, um, I think that we can really make an impact. Another thing, too, is that my story is is really impactful in the way that it can kind of touch like both aisles, right? Like yeah. on the Democratic side, you have the social justice aspect of it 
and, you know, being, you know, a victim and a, a member of a community that has been harmed by prohibition. But then on the, you know, the right wing and, and Republican side and conservative side, it, we have, you know, government overreach and fiscal, fiscal conservatism, um, you know, and, you know, states rights and all those things that kind of tap into to all the stuff that's in the Republican wheelhouse too. So if I can go over and my story can kind of be like the uniting factor of both of those things, I think that will be very impactful and something that we can use to move the needle forward. I completely agree. Have you noticed uh, the same kind of empathy from individuals outside of the cannabis community when you share your story with them? Um, they're blown away. They're like blown away because they're like, they don't understand it. You know what I mean? They're just like, how were you? Like, they think there's a lot of times they think there's had to be something more to it. Like, what were you doing? Were you selling like kilos of heroin out the back of the store or something? Like, how did it, how did this happen? So yeah, like when I, when I share it with just like your lay person out there, you know, they're blown away that this happens, that this happens in their name too. This is my state. My case was the United States versus Luke Scarmazzo. That's the people of the United States. So these incarcerations and these prosecutions are happening in the name of the people. So when you kind of, when I share that with just, you know, your people, your people that are outside of the industry, they're just blown away by it, man. They're literally like, can't wrap their minds around, you know, these types of injustices happening right now today. Any music collabs on the docket going forward? Um, yeah, I'm actually in the studio now. So I'm, I'm trying to tap in with, with some people. I'd love to work with like, you know, we got some some people that are regional around here and and on the national scale, like Mozzie. Mozzie just signed with Yo Gotti. I'd love to work with him. Yuck Mouth of the Loonies is my dog. You know what I'm saying? I'd, I'd love to get back with him and work. E-40 is is the big homie. You know what I'm saying? I love 40. 40 has always been a G in it. Ghost Ride the Whip, oh, right? Yeah, <laughs> you already know. Ghost Ride the Whip. Uh, so yeah, no, like I, I'm definitely getting back in, in the swing of music. I hadn't had time like up until like just really last week to be able to actually sit in a studio and, and, and vibe with some producers. And they're, I mean, they're literally just handing me a bunch of beats and they're like, dude, go to work. And I'm like, listen, I wish I had the time like it was back in the day for me to just sit in here and just vibe out and create a whole album. But it's going to come. We're going to do some things for sure. I'm super excited about that too, because I love music, man. Music is my thing. It's been my thing since I was a kid, since I could first touch the keys of a piano. And, uh, so yeah, it's it's something I'm passionate about. And it's like to really have like a true cannabis revolution, right? We got to have a soundtrack to that thing. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation. What would it be? Man, that's tough. I would have to say like, number one, do not give up. Do not give up no matter what the odds are against you. And just continue to do what you believe, you know what I mean? Stand up for what you believe in. Cannabis and medical cannabis was something that I was passionate about, that I love. I love the plant. I love all the things that it can do. And even though like I was being told I had to say it was bad or I had to, you know, be remorseful or I had to uh, discount everything that, that it, it could do, I wouldn't do it because I was that passionate about it I believe in it that much. And I stood up for what I believed in. And I will still continue to do that today. So number one, never give up. Stand up for what you believe in and just persevere. And you'll come out on the other side. It's really well said. All right. Prediction time. Luke, what is the number one way that people can align with your mission and help others to get freed for nonviolent cannabis offenders? Okay, number one, go to projectmissiongreen.org. Tap in, find out where, how you can become involved. If you're a dispensary or a business owner, you can get involved in the Roundup program that we got with Mission Green Alliance. Follow us on social media. My social media is exactly how my name's spelled, Luke Scarmazzo, L-U-K-E-S-C-A-R-M-A-Z-Z-O. Yeah, and just continue to tap in with us. And we're going to be launching a podcast soon too. That's going to be super dope. So stay, stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, just support the companies that support us, man. If you see a company that is is giving to this cause, support their products, support what they do. And, and, and we can, if we all come together on this, we can really make a change. Really well said. Kelly? 
I mean, I just want to second everything Luke said and then also, you know, reach out to your representatives, your local representatives and, yes, you know, make phone calls, write emails. I mean, it's ridiculous that 70 plus percent of the U.S. population thinks that cannabis should be legal and it's not federally. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and just to, to dovetail off that, your federal representatives, your federal yeah. congressmen, your federal senators, make sure you write to them. Tell them that you support federal cannabis legalization and support interstate commerce and support these crazy uh, 280E restrictions on these businesses that they can't write off their costs like a regular business. So yeah, tap in with, with them on the federal level, on the local level, on the state level, and just continue to push that forward. I'm glad you mentioned that, Kellen. Yeah, for me, I think just sharing your story, Luke, I think if you hear this story, I, I think most people will probably not have an understanding of, on exactly what happened. And I think just by sharing that story will change people's perspectives and recognizing that change needs to happen and we need to kind of move forward on these areas because what happened to you was extremely unfortunate and it's inspiring for for others to help tell that story and appreciate you being vulnerable and honest with here today because it's a really, really powerful story. Yeah, thank you, man. I had a great time and uh, I appreciate you guys having me, man. Yeah, thank we'll, you. we'll link it all up in the show notes. This was fun. Thanks for taking the time, Luke. Yeah. yeah. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.